Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Uh, well, hey, good morning, friends. I hope you're doing well. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a, a joy to be with you this morning. Let me just make sort of um, a logistic comment here. If you're wondering, hey, um, does the staff see that uh, these services are starting to fill up, and um, do we have a plan for what we're going to do when we need more services? Um, we, we have a tentative plan, but you could pray for us, number one, but also uh, keep inviting people. Uh, we want more and more people to know the goodness and grace of Jesus. Amen? And so um, it's a good problem to have. We love that. We also have two other modern services. I want to remind you of that also. One at nine in the chapel and then one at five that I do preach live at each week. And um, so if that works uh, just as well for your schedule, you can join us there also. But um, just want to let you know, we do see. We see what's going on. So it's good to be back with you. Um, we survived a hurricane. Yes. Um, I flew out of uh, San Diego in a hurricane so I can check that off my list, sort of. Uh, I spent last week uh, teaching for the week up in Cannon Beach, Oregon, and um, I got to be there with a, a few good friends, one of which you may know. Um, his name is Dennis Keating, and um, my predecessor, and uh, if you're new here, uh, was a pastor here for 26 years on staff for 40, faithful man of God, good friend of mine, mentor of mine, and uh, love him dearly. And so this is a hike that we did on the Oregon coast, and uh, we also worked a little bit too while we were up there. So, um, but just a really great chance to spend time with him, but also very good to be back with you today. I'm grateful uh, for Jeff Shu and his word last week, and I trust that you were encouraged either in person or online by it. So, a recent study done of people between the ages of 16 and 29 in the United States of folks who aren't a part of a, of a church or a faith community, they were asked what they think about followers of Jesus. And one of the main things that came out of that survey was that 90% of these 16 to 29-year-olds viewed followers of Jesus as, and I don't want you to say your answer out loud, how would you think they might answer that question. Don't say it out loud. 90% of non-Christians viewed Christians as judgmental. Judgmental. In fact, one respondent said, Christians like to hear themselves talk. They're arrogant about their beliefs, but they never bother figuring out what other people actually think. They don't seem to be very compassionate especially when they feel strongly about something. Ouch. Ouch. I don't know about you, but, but that statistic, that, it breaks my heart. And it also stirs up all sorts of questions. Questions like, how do we change that narrative? Questions like, what does it look like to be a redemptive community where people view us as, as caring and loving, um, but like very realistic, like very practical questions, like do we need to soften some of our doctrine in order to see that number go down? Like do we need, do we need to change what we believe in order for people to change what they think about us? Because much of the reason that Jesus followers are viewed as judgmental 
is because of their sexual ethic and their interaction with the LGBTQ community. I mean, if you do any sort of listening at all, you'll find that that's a large part of that number is the way that we interact with that group of people. So if you take a historic Orthodox Christian view on human sexuality, like Emmanuel Faith does, like I do, believing that sexuality is designed by God and it's designed to be expressed between a man and a woman who are committed to each other in covenantal marriage, then you are almost automatically viewed as a judgmental bigot before you say or do anything else. So I ask again, do Jesus followers need to change their doctrine in order to change that number? So I got a few murmurs. No, but before, well, let's, let's just, not so quick, not so quick, right? So I'm convinced, I'm convinced that um, that description of human sexuality that I gave that our church has been um, uh, really strong on since its inception and will continue to be strong on. I'm convinced that that's what the scriptures teach. So I, I don't feel like as a pastor, I have the, um, the license to change that. Can I get an amen? amen? But I'm also convinced the Bible teaches some other things. The Bible teaches things like judge not or you also will be judged. The Bible teaches, blessed are those who are merciful. They will be shown mercy. The Bible says, be merciful, just like your heavenly father is merciful. So what do we do with that? See, I, I don't know about you, but I am borderline haunted by the fact that Jesus that Jesus was honest and direct about sin but he also came to the defense of sinners i'm haunted by the reality that Jesus called out moral impropriety but immoral people were drawn to him like moths to a flame hey, why why is that and please don't say, well, culture has changed. No, no, I, I, think, I think Jesus' followers have changed also. So here's my question. How did he do that? How did he do that? How, how did he embody both truth and grace? How did he do that? that that's what I hope together we learn today. I'm going to invite you to sit at the feet of Jesus. He's our master. He's our teacher. He's our Lord. And let's sit at his feet today and try our best to learn how to live in his way with his heart. So if you have your Bible, would you open with me to John chapter 8? John chapter 8. That's the question that we're going to wrestle with today. What does it look like to be the kind of people who, just like Jesus, hold on to truth and embody truth, but also fully embody grace. So we left off our study in the book of John last week in verse 52. Jesus had just boldly told people on the last day of the Feast of Booths that he was the living water that their souls were longing for. And then listen to the way the next story begins. It begins, 
The earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 7, verse 53 through 8, verse 11. How's that for a crescendo, right? All this buildup and then what you read is that this might not be a part of the earliest Bibles that people had. So let's address the elephant in the room. The story that we're going to read today, should we even read it? Like, let, let's, let's just get it out on the table. Should John 8 verses 1 through 11 even be in our Bible? Well, Dr. Bruce Metzger, who's one of the great Greek scholars of our day, he leads all sorts of committees that help us decide what should and should not, what helped, helped us decide what should and shouldn't be in the scriptures, and then gives reason for that, wrote, and he said, this account has all of the earmarks of historical veracity, uh, meaning when you read it, there's a sense of historic truth that it holds. It is obviously a piece of oral tradition that circulated in certain parts of the Western church. So the United Bible Society's Greek New Testament concluded, although the committee was unanimous that the pericope or this, this um, section of scripture was originally no part of the fourth gospel, in deference to the evident antiquity of the passage, a majority decided to print it enclosed with the double square brackets as it, at, at its traditional place following John 7.52. How's that for a scholarly reason for why? Um, around the year 100, we started to see this story popping up, especially um, in, in the Western church. And then by 400 AD, so, so 1600 years ago, it was included where you see it in the book of John for the very first time. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that? Um, here's what I do with that. I praise God that the scriptures are so honest to tell us the background. Like the reason you know that this section of scriptures wasn't in the earliest and best manuscripts is because the Bible itself tells you it wasn't in the earliest manuscripts. It's not trying to hide anything, not trying to pull the wool over on your eyes, very upfront about the scholarship. And in, in essence saying back to you and to me, you go and do your own research. As I've done mine, I agree with Metzger. I don't know that this was a part of John's gospel from the very beginning, but as I read it, there's a sense that the spirit breathed on it and that it is included in our scriptures for a reason. Now, I'm going to teach it as Holy Scripture, and you can decide the weight you give to it in your own life. Does that sound good? Okay, so here we go. Let's read the story in order to give us an idea of where we're going today. It starts like this. They each went to their own home. Probably because the Feast of Booze was over. Remember, that was a pilgrim feast, so people traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate that feast. After it's over, people start going home. But Jesus, verse 1, went to the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. Now, I love this picture of Jesus because this is not the picture of Jesus stretching out his arms to give his life for the sin of humanity. Um, that, that picture of Jesus is very real and very true. This picture of Jesus is Jesus sitting and teaching like a rabbi would back in that day. So people are sitting at his feet learning, probably learning what it means to live as people who go to him for that living water that he talked about the day before. Jesus, what does it look like to access that? 
What does it look like to live in your way with your heart? What, teach us, Lord. Teach us. Be our rabbi. And from there, let me read to you the way that the story goes. It's not going to be up on the screen, but we're going to read through the end of the story so you have a picture of where we're going. It says this, verse 3. So while that was all going on, while Jesus is rabbiing, teaching, and people are gathering around him in the temple, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught. Everybody say caught in adultery and placed her in the midst and said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and he wrote on the ground. But when they'd heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up. And said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she said. Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no If you were to start in chapter 5 and read chapter 5, 6, and 7 all together, what you'll see is that the main content of those chapters is Jesus teaching in order to defend himself. He's, he's, he's on trial, as it were, in chapters 5 through 7. But here we see him defending not himself, but we see him defending a woman. A woman who's brought, and what, brought in front of everybody. And once again, Jesus takes on the law, but he does so in a very different manner. See, there are two groups of people that Jesus is interacting with in this section of Scripture. First, there's the scribes and there's the Pharisees. Second, there's this woman. And I would suggest to you that in both cases, Jesus is interacting with them about their sin. There's two groups of people that are caught in sin in this passage. We usually read it as only one person. There's two groups of people caught in sin. And the way that Jesus deals with both of them is the same. But their response is very different. See, this story answers the question that the scribes and Pharisees ask in verse 5. What do you say, Jesus? What, what do you say? What should we do? They ask the question disingenuously. Uh, they, they don't really want to know. They're, they're asking the question to trap him, but ironically, they're asking the right question. I mean, they're asking the question that I'm guessing you want to know the answer to. I want to know the answer to. Jesus, what do you say? What do we do about a situation like this? Jesus. And through this story, we learn what Jesus says. See, Jesus meets us in our sin, not to heap condemnation, but to bring restoration. Not to heap condemnation, but to bring restoration. 
Some will read the story and they'll ask, why isn't Jesus harder on sin? And usually what we mean by that is, why isn't Jesus harder on other people's sin? Right? And people will sometimes come up to me and, Ryan, I want to hear you speak on sin more. I want, you to hear, I want to hear you teach on sin more. And sometimes I'll respond and say, well, which sin are you struggling with? I'd be happy to preach on it. Right? And usually it's like, no, 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 other people's sin. I want you to preach on other people's sin more. Why isn't Jesus harder on sin? That's a question that, that people sometimes have. And I would say that this passage, in this passage, Jesus is extremely hard on sin. He's not soft on sin. In fact, in James chapter 2, verse 13, it says, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. You show no mercy to others and they will very rarely show mercy to you. It's the same thing Jesus said in Matthew chapter seven. And then James adds, mercy, say it with me church, triumphs over judgment. As if to say mercy is stronger than judgment. Mercy is more, more potent than judgment. Mercy is victorious over judgment. You see, mercy wins over judgment, and that means that mercy is the strongest, most powerful, most potent way that Jesus can deal with sin. He comes at sin strong because he comes at sin with mercy. Now, if you pull back just a little bit and look at the merciful way that Jesus deals with the scribes and the Pharisees and this woman, there's going to be uh, some things that I think we learn about the way that Jesus deals with our sin also. And he enters into it, not in order to heap condemnation, but to bring about restoration. First, look at the way he did this with the scribes and the Pharisees. They bring this woman to Jesus's feet. They throw her before him and listen to what they say. They say, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? They said this to what? To test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Now this test is, is multi-layered. The first layer uh, is that in, under Roman rule, Jewish people were not allowed to exact capital punishment. It was illegal for them to kill somebody because of their Mosaic law. So they want to trap Jesus. Jesus, are you going to uphold the Mosaic law or are you going to uphold the Roman law? Like, which is, which is more important to you? Moses said this. Herod says that. Who are you going with? But then there's another layer that's right underneath the surface. Because the Mosaic law does talk about adultery, and it takes adultery very seriously. They had strict commands on what to do. Here's the command. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, you shall purge the evil from Israel. So the Pharisees are operating under the guise of upholding the law, but they're missing a key part of upholding the law. In fact, they're missing roughly, if my math is right, 50% of upholding the law. Both 
the man and the woman should be in front of Jesus. So here's my question. Where's the man? Where's the man? He's conspicuously absent. And you probably don't need me to tell you that there's often a double standard when it comes to men and women and their quote-unquote sexual exploits. You'll often hear the term boys will be boys used, but women wear a scarlet letter. The absence of the man in this story has been reason that many people would assume the scribes and the Pharisees, they choreographed this whole scene. They, they set the whole thing up. So never forget that Jesus is brilliant. He is wicked smart. And so, the scribes and the Pharisees want Jesus to deal with a woman's sin, but Jesus says, let's first deal with your sin. So he bends down on the ground, and he starts to write in the dirt. I'll tell you what he wrote in just a second, okay? <laughs> he starts to write in the dirt. And as they continued to ask him questions, Jesus said to him, all right, you guys, you want to do this? Let's do this. Let's, let's stone her. But here's how it's going to work. We're not going to do it in the cowardly way where you all pick up stones at the exact same time and you start throwing them where, where no one is culpable and it's just the crowd. We're not doing it that way. Here's how we're going to do it. Whoever's without sin, get us started. Whoever's without sin, you, you throw the first stone. What's Jesus doing? He's entering in to the sin of the scribes and the Pharisees, and he confronts their and our pride. Remember, there's two groups caught in sin. <laughs> and it may not seem initially all that merciful what Jesus does, but, it, but it, I want to assure you, it is. He could have called them out. He could have broadcast their sin. He could have heaped condemnation. He could have done the exact same thing that they were doing. How many of you are grateful that Jesus is better than you? Can I get an amen? amen? He could have done what they are doing, but he doesn't stoop to their level. He addresses the sin of their hypocrisy, and he gives them a gracious opportunity to repent. See, I think in saying, let him who is without sin throw the first stone, Jesus is echoing the exact same thing that he taught in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that's in your own eye? And we're supposed to chuckle at that word picture a bit. Someone holding a massive log and they're having a massive log in their eye and going, can I help you with that piece of sawdust? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You, what? You, you hypocrite. You, you actor. You, you two-faced. First, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What's Jesus saying there and in John chapter 8 is that we often see others inaccurately because we view ourselves dishonestly. The way that we view ourselves 
on our high and mighty horse oftentimes causes us to look down on others and to see them in an inaccurate way also. You show me someone who's judgmental and I will show you someone who is prideful. And Jesus is calling out their pride. And here's the deal. When we start coming to terms with our own sin, we realize that it could just as easily be us in front of Jesus, in front of the crowd. Amen? Amen. As the old adage says, those who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. And we all live in glass houses. All of our sexuality is fractured and broken in some way. And one of the devastating things that this passage starts to reveal is that pride causes us to lose compassion and empathy for people who are really struggling, for for people who are hurting. Our our pride causes us to look down on others. and, And when we're looking down on others, we can't give them a hand. We can't come alongside. We can't be a redemptive force in their lives. And I think Jesus would love for us to deal with our, both our own and our corporate as a church in America pride today. Because that pride is the thing that has caused us to earn the reputation of judgment by so many. And I think an honest posture of our hearts to say, Lord, forgive us is appropriate. Lord, forgive me. So Jesus deals mercifully with the sin of the leaders, maybe more mercifully than we'd like. I mean, it's funny that some are upset with Jesus because he isn't harder on the sin of the woman. Others are upset with Jesus because he isn't harsh on the sin of the leaders. And I just want to tell you, Jesus is an equal opportunity offender. He's here to offend everybody in some way, right? And then he goes on and he does deal with the sin of the woman. The story with the woman begins with her being dragged to the feet of Jesus after being caught, being caught, being what? Caught in the act of adultery. Isn't it? It's just so strange that sex and sexuality were such hot button issues back in the ancient world. (laughs) The world has changed so much. Hasn't it? And anybody that tells you the Bible's outdated just isn't reading it. What do, you, what do you look like after you've been caught in the act of adultery? My guess is you're wearing minimal clothing. What's going on inside of you as you're paraded in front of religious people who have all their T's crossed and all their I's dotted and all their ducks in a row, minimally dressed, feeling exposed, feeling embarrassed, feeling just absolutely humiliated. Maybe if there's, there's one word that captures what's going on in her heart, if I had to guess, my guess would be Shame. My guess would be shame. This woman standing in the midst of people, in the middle of them, and she has become an object lesson for the religious elites to point at. 
researcher and author Brene Brown defined shame like this. She said, shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Just, just, just let that sit on us for a second. That's that feeling of shame. That, that, that the feeling of if people actually knew, they would desert me in a second. If they knew my story, if they knew what I've been through, they would be gone like that. This woman is standing in front of everybody. They know where she's been. They know what she's done. They know what she's gone through. Brene goes on to write, something that we've experienced, done, or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection. It's that feeling of, of, of no one will ever love me or accept me or want to be around me if they knew what I've been through. That's that feeling of shame. And shame will destroy a person because it goes to the core of a person. It goes to the core of who we are. See, guilt is feeling bad about what we've done. Shame is feeling bad about who we are. And the scriptures talk a lot about sexual sin. In fact, listen to the way that Paul would write about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is, this is really interesting. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside of the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body or her own body. So he's saying, listen, all sins aren't created equal. Like sexual sin affects us on a, on a soul level in different ways. Why? Because it's against our own body. And because sexual sin is against our own body, it carries with it a sense of gravity that affects the very core of our personhood like very few other sins do. And for that reason, shame is so often associated with sexual sin in a, with a gravity and in a way that very few other things are. That's why that abortion that you had still haunts you. It's why the one night stand dances in the back of your mind. It's why the pornography addiction that you've tried to get free of for years and years and years lingers and just starts to come into your mind at the most random of times. It's why Carl Jung would write, shame is a soul-eating emotion. Soul-eating, soul-destroying, devastating effects. And it's at this point, this woman, exposed, humiliated, embarrassed, wearing very few pieces of clothing probably and in absolute utter shame. Jesus starts to write on the ground. A lot of people think that Jesus was writing Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13, that says that those who forsake the Lord shall be written in the dust. That they've forsaken the streams of living water. It makes sense. Jesus just talked in John chapter 7 about living water, and now he's writing in the dust. That, my guess is that's what he was writing. But that's not what I'm interested in. Tomes have been written on that. And I don't think that's the point. I think if that were the point, we would know what Jesus wrote. When Jesus starts to write on the ground, where does everybody's eyes in the crowd go? They go to Jesus. 
is that in Aramaic? Wow, I didn't know he knew how to write. (laughs) Isn't he from Nazareth? Writing, wow. And if all of the people's eyes are on Jesus, none of the people's eyes are on the woman. Jesus just hijacked their object lesson. And he goes, I know, you want to talk about her. But but why don't you, all your eyes right here. Because I'm not as interested in her right now. I'm actually interested in you. And in this beautiful, subversive, and brilliant way, Jesus stands in between the accusers and the woman who is caught in shame. And he says, no, look at me. Don't look at her. Look at me. Don't look at her. And what does Jesus do? He covers our shame. He physically and metaphorically steps between the woman and her accusers. He takes the spotlight off of her, drives her accusers away, looks back at her, and then says, well, where are they? Where where are your accusers? And she claims they're all gone. Did you know that one of the names for the devil or the Satan is the accuser? Did you know that one of his main tactics in your life is going to be to accuse you? Revelation chapter 12, it says that he's the accuser of the brethren, the accuser of the the brothers and the sisters, that he's going to take those things that you've done, those decisions that you've made, those places where you're you're apt to carry shame, and he's going to bring them to your mind on a regular basis to remind you how big of a failure you are, how many times you've messed up, and how you are completely unworthy of the love of God. That's one of his main tactics, and you need to know it so that you can fight back against it. And the way that we fight back against it is we say, no, I actually have a defender. He stands in my defense. He has gone to the cross for me. In fact, Jesus right now stands in between you and your accuser to say, don't look at him, look at me. And I'm perfect. And I took all of his or her sin and all of their shame. And I buried it in the ground and I rose with new life in in my hands. And they are with me. Don't look at them, look at me. That's the picture that we have of the gospel. So we'll sing songs like, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Anybody been there? Come on. Upward I look to see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because my sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. And Jesus, for all eternity, will stand in between you and your accusers to say, they are with me. And here's what I just felt as I was preparing today. Uh, well, I prepared earlier than today, but um, <laughs> as I was pre- preparing for today. Um, I just got the sense that maybe some of you are a lot like me, where um, 
your own, you are your own worst accuser. And the enemy loves that. He stirs it up. But you're your own worst accuser. And I just had this sense that Jesus um, wanted to free people this morning. You are not more holy because you continue to accuse yourself. It's not helping you walk with Jesus. You want to love him more, know that he loved you, gave himself up for you. It's not your accomplishments that make you right with him. It's his accomplishments on your behalf that by faith we step into. Friends, this is the message from the, of the gospel. And if you are accusing yourself for the sins that you have committed, you are partnering with the devil, not with Jesus. Jesus stands in between you and your sin. You are not your mistakes. For the people in the back, you're not your mistakes. You are not your bad decisions. You are not what they did to you. You have a defender who comes and says, yeah, yeah, I know you want to look at him and her and all the stuff that they've done, but why don't you, why don't you look at me instead? I'll, I'll stand in between you. Listen to the way that the conversation concluded, Jesus stood up and said to the woman, and said to her, woman, which by the way, Jesus says two other times in the Gospel of John. Both times he is talking to his mother. John chapter 2, the wedding, woman, my time has not yet come. On the cross, he speaks to her and says, woman. It's a term of endearment. It's a term of love. So he looks at this woman who's just covering herself. Where are they? Has no one condemned you? That, that word condemned in the Greek is also the word that we translated, translate judge. Has no one judged you? No one wants to put you on trial anymore and heap condemnation on you? No one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn or judge you. Remember, mercy is more powerful than what? Judgment. Jesus enters into her sin and he enters into the sin of the religious elites and he confronts their pride. He covers her shame and he cleanses her guilt. I don't condemn you. And he does the exact same thing for us. See, here Jesus stands before the leaders and he, he writes in the sand, but, but later on he will stand before the leaders and he will stretch out his arms. And it won't be his finger that digs into the dirt, it'll be drops of blood that drip from the cross where he takes all the penalty of our sin, everything that we deserved on his shoulders, buries it in the ground, and he walks out of the grave with new life in his hands. Friends, by his wounds, we are healed. His grace is sufficient for you on your best day and on your worst day. As Paul would write in the book of Romans, there is therefore now 
right now, today. And when you read it tomorrow, it'll be now tomorrow also. And when you read it in 10 years, it'll be now in 10 years also. And on your worst night, it'll be now. And on your best day, it'll be now. And everywhere in between, it will be now, right now, this very moment, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I've looked in every Bible that I have, and there's no footnote that says, except for Ryan. And no footnote that has your name in it. There is therefore right now no condemnation for you. If you by faith have trusted in Jesus, he has taken all of the condemnation on his own shoulders, buried in the ground, and walked out with new life in his hands. So friends, you don't need to condemn yourself to convince God that you're sorry. Confess. Here's where I've been, here's what I've done. You know what the great thing about confession is? None of it's gonna surprise God. He's not gonna be like, no way. (laughs) None of it, he knows it all. So confess, repent, turn. And then live. Listen to the way it ends. Jesus says to this woman, go and sin no more. See, what Jesus is saying is that sin hasn't just lost its punishment. It's not just that, oh, now you don't get stoned. Great. It's no, now you can go and you can live in a way that brings joy and meaning and purpose to your life. Go and sin no more. Go and live in abundance. Go and live the life I've designed you to live. He's saying to this woman, you don't have to go back to your old patterns and your own ways. Sin has lost its punishment, but it's also lost its power. Move forward in a new way that brings life and meaning and wholeness because the presence of grace creates the possibility of new life. And I'm, here's what I'm struck by in this story. And I think this gets to the core of the story. I think it gets to the, to the heart of it. There are two groups of people who are caught in sin in this story. At the end of the story, one of those groups of people has had their sin exposed. And then what did they do? What did the scribes and Pharisees do? we're out of here. The other person, this woman, has her sin exposed. And what does she do? Where do I go? What what do I do? And, And I think the heart and core of this story is the question. Not only, Jesus, what do you say? Because he says, no condemnation in me. He says, forgiven. He says, cleansed. He says, deal with your guilt, deal with your pride and surrender it. He says, my grace is sufficient. That's what he says. But the other question of this story is where do you turn in your sin? And there's only two options. You either turn to him and find forgiveness and restoration and wholeness, or you run away from him and forfeit all the blessing that he would love to shower down on you. And his mercy that triumphs over judgment just falls flat in your life and amazing grace is dashed. And I think that's the question. Where do we turn when our life gets turned upside down? The year was 1988. The date was June 11th. The scene is 
Wembley Stadium. 72,000 people have packed into this stadium to celebrate Nelson Mandela's 70th birthday. And there was bands upon bands that were playing. People were rocking out. People were going crazy. I mean, bands like Guns N' Roses were playing. And I, I don't know who the concert promoter was. <laughs> My guess is he was looking for a job after. But the last act of the night, after Guns N' Roses had played, was um, an opera singer by the name of Jesse Norman. Jesse Norman strolls to the center of this stage in Wembley Stadium. No band, no backing track, just her and her voice. And people start booing. Boo! We want Guns N' Roses! Boo! And acapella, she starts to sing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. And something amazing happened. After that first verse, the boos were silenced. And then this crowd started to, to dig into the, the recesses of their memory. And I guess I wonder if Amazing Grace is one of those songs that, that just holds on. Where, where even if people don't believe it's true, they, they, they want to believe it where it just sort of gets into your soul and it screams out something transcendent about God and about the way he's created us and his goodness toward us. And when she started to sing the second verse, the people just joined in. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears Relieved, how precious did that grace appear. The hour I first believed. And when she reached the final verse of that great hymn, the crowd that was booing her at one point stood up and joined their voices in singing along. Would you rise with me? When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the Sing 
Friends, being full of grace does not mean we ditch our convictions. It means we drop our rocks. Being full of grace does not mean we ditch our convictions. It means we drop our rocks, open our arms, and truly believe that mercy is in fact more powerful than judgment in your life, in mine, and in every person you see this week. So Jesus, would we be caught up again in your amazing grace? As we see ourselves in this story, Lord, would you confront us about our pride, show it to us so that we can let it go and move forward in a new way? If you need to humble us, humble us. If you need to humiliate us, humiliate us. We want to let go of our pride so that we can see you and ourselves and others accurately. Lord, remind us today, for the person who walked in these doors today just riddled with shame and the weightiness of that was just crushing them, Lord, I pray that they would walk out with a sense, a new sense of life from you your spirit's work in them, the reminder that you stand in between them and their accusers and will forever. And Lord, remind us all that it's because of your great grace where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. That your grace is sufficient for us and it's amazing in our lives and may it be amazing in the lives of those that we interact with this week. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.